have a confession to make. This show, Woman of Impact, is a Trojan horse. You see, the biggest impact in my life was when I accepted my inadequacies, shortcomings and flaws and became a student of growth. And I realized that by sitting face to face with women who can teach and facilitate my growth would be like plugging into the matrix. Yep, just call me Trinity. And today's guest is my Morpheus. Training at Cornell University and gaining a PhD in clinical psychology, today's woman of impact put on her Timberlands and walked down a very traditional path and opened up a private practice. But with her developing brain fog, short-term memory loss, and ever-growing anxiety, she realized her existing methods and understanding of the brain were not complete. So in her search to heal herself, she began to research epigenetics, the mind-gut connection, and the subconscious everything she hadn't learned in school. And as her mind and body came into balance and the scary symptoms over time went away, she could no longer deny the power of the holistic approach. Now, founder of the Mindful Healing Center in Philadelphia, as a holistic psychologist, she works with individuals, couples, and families on relationships, gut health, sleep, movement, cellular health, belief, and mindfulness. So please, help me in welcoming the woman who's empowering individuals to be the hero of their own lives by healing themselves. The woman, through her blogs and videos, shows us tactically how to gain control of our thoughts and emotions. And the woman who is growing faster on social media than bamboo in a rainstorm. The holistic psychologist herself, Dr. Nicole Lepera. Thank you so much, Lisa. Welcome I'm, to the I'm show. I'm blushing in all ways. That was such a wonderful introduction. I'm beyond honored to be here. Oh, God, I'm so excited. I think that right now you're going to teach me so much. Everyone's going to see me like go straight into the student <laughs> mode because I just want to suck out every piece of information you have. And where I want to start is understanding our subconscious, um, our consciousness, I should say. Um, and I have a quote from you. The most impactful tool is developing consciousness. Most of us feel completely merged in our thinking mind. We need to be conscious in order to explore and change any limitations within ourselves. If we're not, then we're going into autopilot and end up making the same mistakes, repeating the same patterns. It's consciousness that allows us to choose, to pick new thoughts, to have new feelings and to make new choices. So talk to me through what actually is consciousness and how do we establish it? So in a very simplified way, my two steps of change that you'll always hear me mention are consciousness and then really starting to break those habits of the subconscious, really. That's a lot of the reason why we're stuck. And I always throw this stat out there, Lisa, because to me it's mind-blowing. The fact of the matter is that if we do not practice or make an intentioned effort at becoming conscious, 95% of our waking day is spent in autopilot. So that's incredible. And to me, that's a lot, a lot of the reason why people are saying the word to me, and I'm sure you might have felt this yourself, I know I did, which is stuck. Mm -hmm. A lot of the reason we're stuck is because, again, the power, that 95% of our day, we're caught in that autopilot. So first and foremost, consciousness is, is the way that we change. So what consciousness is, is coming out of autopilot is learning to observe ourself, our internal world and our external world in a new way um, so that we can be able to ultimately then begin to pick new thoughts, like you said, new choices. We can really begin to change. And I think for me, it's, it's really shifting into another word that I always say is empowerment. Mm. Because I think when we are in that autopilot state, a lot of us really understandably begin to feel reactive in the world. 
we live our life and things happen in our external environments a lot of times in our relationships we feel like we're just going about life reacting to them and unfortunately the reactions that we typically have are very patterned are not really the most helpful reaction so until we practice consciousness that is where we gain control because we shift from okay the world is happening to me and I'm just reacting in that same old way that's getting me the same old response mm-hmm. or kind of feedback in the environment to wait a minute now I'm online I'm a, I'm a participant so let me understand the role that my subconscious or that my mind plays in my daily life and that is I believe how we become empowered because now we're in the picture we're in the equation and we get to have a say about what happens next in a new way. Yeah. So um take me through what I love about your content is you're so tactical. So talk me through someone's listening right now what is that first thing that they should be doing in their own lives to acknowledge the habits, the consciousness and the subconsciousness and then we'll take it kind of to the next stage. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that I suggest that even clients that I work with do is observe themselves because the reality is us humans at least in my belief are incredibly habitual creatures mm-hmm. from just our daily habits the things we do first thing in the morning the things we do last thing at night to our thoughts become very habitual we tend to think the same type of thought mm-hmm. and then because i believe that our thoughts trigger reactions emotions in our environment actual physiology changes we tend to have the same experiences and in our bodies we tend to feel the same way mm-hmm. and not always is that helpful so first and foremost anyone listening observe themselves notice not only their behavioral habits but tune into into your mind into the thoughts that are peppering through your day and a great practice to do that is through meditation okay i am always a proponent of developing a sitting meditation practice to meet your internal world because for some people me included i didn't know how powerful my thoughts were i wasn't aware mm. that i was having thoughts all day long and i think because a lot of us have become so merged with our thinking mind that we think I'll hear things I thought this too I thought my thoughts were my intuition I thought it was directing me through life you know I thought that there was value up there the things that I was hearing said essentially in my mind all day long so the first skill I think is to separate that and understand that I'm here something you'll hear people say is I'm the watcher of mm, my thoughts mm-hmm. I think that's an incredibly important component of a meditation practice I think another important component of a meditation practice is breaking a habit that I know a lot of us have developed of judging our thoughts. A lot of us think our thoughts are good or bad and even more of us think that good or bad thoughts make us a good or bad person. So through a practice of meditation, learning to view thoughts objectively or with neutrality, mm. that is really important. So through the act of meditating, really starting to learn not only to just be with our thoughts, observe our thoughts, but not judge our thoughts. It's not about blocking thoughts it's not even about you know bullying thoughts out of my mind thoughts are going to happen i describe thoughts in the most simple way is as neurons that are firing that have become way over practice firing in a not helpful way so the act of moving our attention as humans we have the most important choice that we can make daily a lot of us don't make this choice we allow our attention to be either grabbed by at this point what's an endlessly distracting external world i mean i walk around daily with what could be a television at my fingertips or a lot of us become so preoccupied with the thoughts in our mind that we are living in life more looking inside than even looking and present outside mm-hmm. so when thoughts come while we meditate it's constant redirection of attention 
the most powerful choice we can make is to not bully our thoughts away but remove our attention and allow our thoughts to then naturally come and go. So like give me an actual, so you're sitting there, I'm meditating, I have these thoughts, I'm acknowledging these thoughts, but I start to judge them. What, how can I then switch my brain to say don't judge? Is it just saying, okay, now you're judging, you shouldn't? Like what does that actually look like? Sometimes some people can find help by just labeling thoughts, just an objective, I'm thinking is a good switch you can make, mm. right? Or just viewing the thought, We can, because we're habitual, we can categorize them. Oh, that's my to-do list thought again. Oh, that's my I'm a bad person thought again. Oh, that's my mm. I'm not worthy thought. So sometimes just putting a more objective label mm. on them, I think can be helpful um, as an initial practice to shift from, oh, that's a bad thought or don't have that thought to, it just is, right. I think, is our goal. Oh, that's really good. Because even as I was saying, shouldn't, I was like, well, that's a terrible word, right? Mm-hmm. Like, then now I'm putting judgment on the fact mm-hmm. that I should or I shouldn't do something. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes it bad. Um, okay, so that was so clear, and I totally get it. I'm definitely going to try that. Um, and then now take me to habit. What are the steps that we can do to change the habit? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I talk about a sitting practice, Lisa, is because it's a bit easier. This is a difficult skill, though, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a lot of us life is is distraction in a helpful way if i'm focused outward on all of the things that i have to do sometimes a lot of people i was this person as well i resisted having a sitting practice for a very long time because the act of sitting brought up in my mind and then in my feelings all of the discomfort that was below the surface Mm. and i'm someone who was very productive throughout my whole life Um, so productivity became a distraction for me checking the next box kept me from sitting with myself in a way that was more emotionally comfortable for me. So a lot of people, I do think, struggle to sit. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I believe that when consciousness, put it this way, becomes the most impactful is when we learn how to observe ourselves in our daily life. You know, getting a look on those behavioral habits. What does my day look like? Because I do work around nutrition, what do my eating choices look like? This is another area. Just people journal this down. Journaling is great. Some, I mean, depending on whatever gets you looking, some people do a journal. And I think if you're doing some work around nutritional changes, writing down what your food choices look like, that I think can help us become a little more Mm self-observational. Going inward, then observing our internal world throughout our day is also very difficult. So it means checking in with yourself throughout the day, noting first and foremost, where is my attention? Right? And if it's internal, if I'm looking at my thoughts, what was going on? What was I thinking? And sometimes it just means being conscious, setting the intention, put it this way, to be conscious mm-hmm. through the given day. So a tool I came up with that I think has been having a lot of success with people is what I call a future self journal. Um, so it's the act of each day, instead of journaling about, oh, this is what I did or this is what I'm feeling, journaling about an intention to change. And I think the repetition of doing that daily helps us to then be a bit more conscious through our day because it's not our autopilot yet. Our autopilot is that subconscious, is those old habits. So for a lot of us, we have to set the intention to be a bit more conscious and observe either my external world and what it looks like or my behaviors and then being able to move that inward that I call it my observational spotlight and starting to look at, okay, what are the thoughts that I'm having that are coloring my choices through my day? Wow, I love that so much. And I hear you talking a lot about looking in the future. Talk to me a little about that because people use their history as an example of why they are who they are now. 
Um, mm. But I love your thinking of the future. Yeah, I believe at least that there is a place for our history, that understanding right. where we came from can be really helpful to understanding a bit about where and why we're stuck also giving us then the opportunity to begin to move forward. So I will never say that there's not a place right. for our past, but I do agree that there has to be a pivot at some point and starting to imagine change and bringing the subconscious back. So even if, whether it's in a therapy session or even an insightful person might have a look at their past, understand why they're stuck, have the realization or the insight that could be helpful, maybe even know what they have to start to do differently to see different results in their life. Mm -hmm. The reality of it is in those moments, we are battling in some senses our subconscious, which is wanting to take over and to run. I always use the computer analogy just because I think it's the most understandable yeah. one, you know, but to run that same program over and over again. So when this particular thing happens, unless I show up and make a conscious decision to make a new choice, my subconscious is going to make the decision for me. I'm going to do the same thing I always do when I'm sad, when I'm mad, when I'm glad even. Same thing goes with relationships. Relationships are, are the arena, I call them, for all of or a lot of our older patterns that aren't helping. So not only do I believe having a look at a different future and beginning to even conceptualize or imagine the possibility for change mm -hmm. is important, but I also think being conscious is necessary in those moments to begin to actualize that future in a new way. Because if you're not, your subconscious is going to continue to get you more of what you've already gotten. Mm -hmm. And so how do you actually do that? Do you come up with ideas and plans and strategies before you that happens? So let's say you've recognized, okay, I'm habitually doing X, Y, and Z. I want to change it. I understand why I do it, but I understand the future that I want to create. So you're very aware of it. In that moment where you can feel your old past wanting to react how you do, what do you do in order to switch it to remind yourself of that future self? Yeah, so a tool that I'm always talking about, because it really is the bridge, in my opinion, between the mind and the body connection and gives us choice in our emotional regulation, which, because the reality of it is, as I think you know, I know, I think we all know, emotions have an effect in our body. We feel our emotions, our energy shifts, neurotransmitters are released, hormones are released. If we're stressed, it's gonna be cortisol, it's gonna be adrenaline. So our body is now logging a response to what might have even started solely in our mind. But regardless, breath work. I'm always a proponent of breath work. Learning how to breathe in a particular way really does bring our physiology down, gives us a bit of space between what would have just been that old habitual reaction and the opportunity to make that new choice. Because the reality of it is, I always say, there's a point uh, on a one to 10 scale of emotion, right? At around an eight or a nine, we're, we lost control. We did. There's no, there, we don't have the chance to break that old reaction. It's gonna just run the same way it does. I'm either gonna kick and scream or I'm gonna dissociate and detach in a very simplified way. I'm gonna do the old thing that I always do. That's what we call our triggers, as I, as I call it. Um, I think they come from an accumulation of our past experiences, big trauma, little trauma, whatever it is, unmet needs, and they make it difficult. Um, our emotions make it difficult. Our bodies don't work in our favor. So as effortful as meditation is, mm -hmm. it actually changes the way our brain fires. So the more consistently we practice a, a meditation, a mindfulness-based meditation practice, we're actually thickening a lobe of our brain that allows us to stay conscious in those moments and we're weakening the connection from our emotional center. So that 
coupled with breath work, really does give us the opportunity to begin to make those new choices and actually uphold those plans that might be beautiful. But without that, I think that balance in those pivotal moments, those plans are just the thing that we're going to end up feeling shameful about later. Because I know that's the byproduct of this too, especially when we're really aware after the fact. I've done this myself. I've shot that nasty text out that I knew on some level I didn't mean. And then afterward, I feel even worse about myself because I'm like, oh, yo, you knew better. You had the plans. Why did you still do that? And it's because I didn't have a balance um, from which to make a new choice from. Yeah, I think everyone has done that, right? Where you're like, you know you shouldn't have done yep. that text, mm -hmm. but you had to. It made you feel better in that mm -hmm. one moment. Mm -hmm. um, so in those moments, let's say you're arguing with a partner or somebody and it starts to get heated and you understand you need to take the breath work, do you suggest then removing yourself from that situation and just saying, I just need time and then yeah. do the breath work? Yeah, sometimes time and space, I often say, are our best friends. And right. if it's in... A partnership sometimes it means having a conversation with a partner that you might you know in, uh, in what I employ what I call a timeout you know because I think sometimes uh, partners especially if we're talking about intern in in relationships which mm -hmm. is I think where a lot of our triggers live mm -hmm. um, leaving a partner could feel hurtful but if you allow the partner to know hey listen I'm working I'm working on changing some of these patterns so the next time I'm feeling a bit escalated or out of control I might have to put a pin in this conversation and leave. Of course, then it's our job or our responsibility to put that pin in it, to take that time out, to remove ourselves, because that which we don't have control over ever, unfortunately, and I think a lot of people do not like this uh, reality, is our partner mm -hmm. even. So if we continue to escalate and then our partner continues to escalate before we know it, we're having that overreaction that's not helpful for either of us. So removing ourselves. Sometimes we're moving ourselves, just taking time, space away, doing some body deactivating techniques like breath work. We'll be able to then bring that conscious lobe of your brain really back online mm -hmm. to then put that new choice into effect. Yeah. You just said um, um, with our partners is where most of our triggers live. Why do you think that is? Well, I believe that the reason that is, I think that all of us are carrying, whether it's a wound, a hurt, an unmet need from early childhood developmental experiences. The reality of it is, I, I think at least that us humans are social creatures. Mm -hmm. Relationships are necessary to some extent and will always be necessary in our existence. And the earliest models and relationship experiences that we've had were with, within our caregiving environment. When we were much younger, when we had much less access to other ways to cope. A lot of times when I was refer referencing earlier those habitual patterns of reactivity, a lot of times in those moments of trigger we do see what looks like a more childlike reaction. Mm. When I said outward screaming, yelling, looks a bit like a tantrum, mm. right? When we go inward, when we dis dissociate, detach, and I believe that those ways of coping were actually formed very early on when these wounds happened. Um, and became the way that we coped when we didn't have the emotional maturity, the maybe supportive emotional space, even maybe the caregivers that were modeling to us an, a different way of navigating emotions, um, and they become the ones that we go to. Even though we've now become an adult, mm. we're much more mature, we're maybe not even connected with those earlier environments anymore, um, but we don't update those because again, they live in that subconscious of ours. And so I think that a lot of the times why our triggers happen in relationships is because a lot of the wounding happened 
in relationships. And something I always want to say too is nothing kind of glaringly abusive or hugely neglectful happened in my own past childhood. So for me, I had a long time and every time I share my story, I have a lot of um, people reaching out to me, you know, relating because they too, none of us were checking the boxes of trauma as I think we typically understood it. So when we see ourselves not having the life or not being as successful, say, in our relationships, we wonder why. We're confused. Um, so I think, like I said, it doesn't have to look like what we typically think of. Sometimes it's just lower level unmet needs. It's not being seen, heard, acknowledged for the unique being that we are. And something I will often always also acknowledge at this point, if we're humans who are raising other humans. So adults, parents, caregivers, when you have a child, the way I see it at least is you're only equipped to give, to teach, to model for a child what you know yourself, what you yourself have been taught, what you yourself do. And the reality of it is not all the time are we that equipped as caregivers when we become caregivers because we didn't learn that from our own parents. And this is how I think a buzzword now has become intergenerational transmission of whatever it is, trauma, you know, whatever it might be, patterns. And I, I know that's true, um, and this is, this is why it's true. But that's why I believe that it happens in our relationships because a lot of our wounding is interpersonal. That's so interesting. It never dawns on me that trauma is seen as like there's, would you call it the big T trauma? The big T. Mm -hmm. um, where it's like the sexual abuse or something really big has happened and anything else is almost kind of diminished, right? Where it's like, well, if nothing big's happened to you, why are you like that? And it never dawned on me that that um, is, is incredibly detrimental to the person who is feeling it because it really doesn't matter how extreme the trauma is if you're feeling um, neglected or if you're feeling not thought of it's still a real feeling mm -hmm. so if somebody right now is listening and they have that situation where nothing massive has happened but they don't feel considered um, or they don't feel thought of how do um, they get out of that mm -hmm. I think it's acknowledging it. You'll always hear me talk about radical honesty mm. because I know for myself as well, it was really hard for me to admit the lackings in my own childhood because when I looked at it objectively, and also I think this is something else that happens, we have to remind ourselves that when we're looking back as an adult, we're looking back as an adult, mm. right? Maybe that devastating event at the three-year-old when my, my favorite blanket, you know, my mom ripped my favorite blanket because she was mad one day or whatever it might have been, or maybe my favorite blanket got ruined in the laundry and mom didn't really care or right. seem to care, right? If I'm in my 30s, 40s, 50s, I'm looking back, I diminish that. I say, oh, it was a blanket, right? But we have to remember that we're looking back as an adult and as a three-year-old, how devastating that might have felt, even if it was only a blanket at that time for whatever reason. And then being really honest, because something I struggled with was being really honest, was seeing the fact that in some areas I was not seen, considered. I smiled when you said that, because that was a, that's a really deep wound for me. Mm -hmm. I was seen in, a, in, in some ways. I was very academically achieving. I was really good at sports. So it was hard for me to, I think, rationalize how I could be feeling not considered when in a lot of ways I, I was considered. So it didn't make sense to me that I was carrying such a deeper wound. Mm -hmm. so, so I think some of the healing process for a lot of us is just being honest with ourselves and with where our wounds are. I think something that's really helpful, marrying these two topics when we talk about consciousness, looking in those moments of triggering, looking for the patterns. What are the things that typically result in that bigger feeling for me? 
And I assure you, more often than not, there's a pattern there. There's a reason that can give us understanding into what the deeper wound is so that I can have a bit of clarity on what do I do now to move forward. So having that self-observational practice, that internal looking, and using our trigger points, our, our hurts, our big reactions in the world now as an adult to have a bit of understanding about what is driving those on that deeper emotional level so that we can know essentially what to do next for ourselves as now the adult that we are. Yeah. I heard you tell a story about you had an argument with your wife about um, the dishes. And that was so strong to me because I think that that's what, where it comes out. Mm. It doesn't come out often in these big moments. It comes out in the small things where someone didn't do the dishes and now it becomes the biggest argument ever. Mm -hmm. So take me through that because I think so many people can relate and then how you kind of um, broke it down to acknowledge it and then change it. Yeah, absolutely. So the dishes, the dishes would incense me. I was having reactions in my home that felt big for me, that resulted in these arguments that would then escalate. So I had, I looked, I was like, okay, what's going on here? Mm. And then where I looked is inside. So I started to become aware of my internal world. And what I started to realize was the dish, what would happen internally is I would say, why doesn't she consider me? Doesn't she know what my day was like? Some version of, and if we really pare it down, it was, I'm not considered, I'm not, taken into mind when this decision to leave the dish was there. So when I would yell at her or withdraw to the bedroom or throw the dish in the sink and begrudgingly do it, it wasn't the dish that was the problem. It was the fact that the dish, I assigned the meaning of the dish to be, I was not considered in that moment. So then my reaction was very understandable. I was hurt. I didn't feel seen by my partner whom I love and I want to be seen so desperately by. For me, of course, this originated very early on in my family with a mother who was very emotionally withdrawn. So like while I said, while my accomplishments were celebrated, I felt largely unseen by her and my family for who I was. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, it was as if I was that child again, not being seen by my mom. So the reaction that was coming out was, was so big. And it's confusing for our partners too, because she's over there wondering what the hell is wrong with me. She doesn't give a shit about the dishes, right? <laughs> you know, she's like, okay, Nicole, it's a dish. Like, sorry, you know? Right. That's why arguments happen in, in partners, because mm -hmm. I'm reacting and making it about the dish. She can't understand why a dish is so big and such an issue. And, you know, maybe next time she'll try harder with the dish, but it's not about the dish. So I had to have that internal look, see the pattern there, understand what was happening for me that I was making this about not being considered, and then the work was my own. Then I had to, first and foremost, teach myself out of assigning that meaning for each and everything. Now this is to say, because I do get these questions a lot, well, don't we need to have limits? Don't we need to have boundaries? Yes, of course, we need to have things that don't work for us in our partnership. That's always going to apply. But first and foremost, I need to do my work to undo these unnecessarily assigned meetings. You know, if I came to the end of the journey and the dish was really an issue, then I'd have a conversation with my partner about doing the dishes. But it turns out when the dish no longer meant I wasn't being considered, I had no problem putting the dish in the dishwasher because I know that she does consider me. This wasn't the reality that I was responding mm -hmm. to. So I had to shave off that filter. I had to practice or unpractice using that filter ultimately allowing a dish just to be a dish. And is that what you would tell yourself after that when you would come home and see the dish? Would you like repeat? So for a while, dish? so even though I, once I realized, okay, this is about being, not being considered, 
my subconscious didn't get on board and say, oh, okay, this well, is another like, girl, no problem. <laughs> yeah, Do you, gotcha. you know? No. So what happened is my subconscious kept trying to assign the meaning of, but I was able to catch it. I said, okay, this is, this is what I'm making this about right now. Right. And I may choose to redirect my attention elsewhere, go have a couple deep breaths, walk away from the dishes entirely. If I didn't, if it was a bad day or if I was stressed out and I didn't feel like I could do that in that moment, leave the scene of the dishes for a minute to deescalate. And then I was able to shift and just be present in the moment on a deeper level part of. And this is what I mean when I talk about inner child work or, or healing, because while maybe these wounds happen and these needs went unmet, in my childhood, right? From caregivers whose job, if you will, was it to help me to meet those. Now as an adult, it's my job. So then part of my deeper journey was, okay, how can I, if, if considered and lack of consideration has been rampant through my life, it's now my job to consider myself. So what are the practices in that moment, just consistently in my life, how can I start to show up for myself and consider myself and my needs in my moment? So. It's, I think we all we, we operate on two levels and healing happens on two levels. Mm-hmm. First, practicing that consciousness, that observation, that attentional removal from the filters that don't work. Over time, they will lessen, they will weaken because right now mine was over-practiced. So every time the dish happened, I had no control. My subconscious said, oh, lack of consideration, lack of consideration because I was firing it so mm-hmm. frequently. And then I had a bit of deeper work to do. I had to start to meet my own need. I had to start to show up and consider myself. Because as I say it, even if I am in partnership with another human, my emotions are my responsibility. Um, and I, I, I believe that we become the most empowered human when we don't look outside of ourselves to have any need met by another person. Like I said earlier, humans are social and I'm very much for interdependence. I will always hopefully I'm assuming have this partner that I have I will exist in partnerships with people my world will involve social exchanges of one kind or another but when I can meet my needs it frees me up to welcome what other people are offering me in a new way and also to be okay when others aren't offering me what I think they should in that moment yeah, oh God, I love that. Tom and I um, made a, like a conscious agreement, I guess, of like we're not going to let the other person's um, emotions or um, feelings um, rub off onto the other person. So if he's in a bad mood, I'll ask, babe, do you need anything? How can I help you? But if he's just going to permanently be in a bad mood, I know that he has to do the work. Okay. Because what we would notice is over time, I'd start to get annoyed. Right, because yeah. his his bad mood is then rubbing off on me, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I'd be in a bad mood, and then he'd be in a bad mood. I'm like, why, why are you in a bad mood? He's like, because you're in a bad yeah. mood, and then it just spirals out of control. So we've learned to then just distance ourselves, so that we're not perpetually. It becomes like that, like ever revolving mm-hmm. door, which like, oh my god, it's just impossible yeah. to get off. Mm-hmm. Versus someone else just stepping back, and then you can kind of do the work you set yourself, mm-hmm. like you said. Yeah. Um, talk to me about confidence, and I know you actually compare confidence with ego and the difference between that as well, because that actually is something that I try to pay attention a lot to. Like, I don't ever want to spill over into ego, but I always want to be confident. Yeah, absolutely. Ego, I don't think, is what we typically have been taught it was, like a pompous, a egocentric, a narcissistic, like, it's just about me and I'm great. Ego, as I see it, and psychologically, is a protection. I'm protecting part of myself that's insecure, that's unsure if I can be that person that's scared, that's not as confident right now. So with that said, confidence is a choice. 
just like discipline is a choice. You know, a lot of us will look at, and a lot of the work I do requires consistent tools, using these tools consistently. There's no magic elixirs. We don't do this thing once or as needed as most of us like to do and get better. Mm -hmm. So when I'm working with people, I talk a lot about habit development, meaning how do we make these choices consistent. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things I hear when people struggle, there's a very real reason why, universal reason in the subconscious, why change is hard. I normalize it across the board because change is hard for all of us. And a lot of things I hear people self-describe is when they struggle to change, I'm undisciplined, I'm lazy, you know, maybe this, I'm not confident, whatever it is, I'm not that. So therefore I can't change. And this is why change is hard. Um, So whether it's confidence, whether it's discipline, I believe those are choices that can be cultivated with consciousness and then repeat it enough that then we can actually begin to show up in the world confidently or you know, disciplined or whatever it is that we're working to achieve. So take me through, let's say, some strategies of like someone's in there right now, they want to be confident, they want to show up in the world, they want to, they've got all these dreams, but they don't feel like they've got the confidence to do it. What are those first steps Mm -hmm. that practically people can actually do? Yeah, absolutely. So I talk a lot about rebuilding Mm self-trust because I talk about self-betrayal that I think a lot of us begin to feel or we we lack trust in ourselves, whether it's because we haven't consistently said, done what we said we were going to do, or we find ourselves stuck in the same pattern. Before long, you repeat that enough, we become someone on some deep level, as I see it, that we don't trust ourselves. And I see confident or self-trust as being the bridge to confidence. So when I talk about, I build this process right in with building habits. So you'll often hear the language that I use is a small daily promise. That's just an intention. Small. Emphasis on small. Because what, what? What I do know about humans, we set a bar too high. So a small daily promise, if we're talking breath work, five deep belly breaths. Could be waking up five minutes earlier. Could be, you know, doing one new small thing in any given day. Whatever it is, emphasis on small. Because the higher the expectation, the more quickly we travel down the path of lacking confidence again. Because Mm -hmm. an expectation bar that's set too high that I don't meet or I don't meet as consistently as I would like to meet it, I start to erode even further that Mm -hmm. confidence. So when I said change is hard for all of us, in our subconscious, in the most simplest way to think about it, as crazy as it sounds, your subconscious, just like mine, just like everyone in this room, our subconscious has logged everything that's happened to us thus far in our life and will continue to do that until we're no longer on this planet, which is a lot of crap. So to make sense of it, and this is a little silly like thing I say, but I think this is helpful, is we have a little avatar in us, and yours is a little Lisa, mine is a little Nicole. It's memorized us. It knows all of our habits behaviorally. It knows all of our habitual thoughts. It knows how those thoughts make us feel. So logically, right, you might be saying, okay, whoever's listening, this new thing that I want to do, small promise, is going to get me to the goal that I want. When you go to do this new thing, Our subconscious registers our choices in a very black and white way, with the one end being familiar equals safe, good. Unfamiliar equals unsafe, possibly dangerous, bad. To be avoided at all costs. Never do it again. Run away as quickly as possible. (laughs) And then one of two things happen. Um, Either an endless, I call it mental chatter. We'll have an endless litany of reasons why never to do this thing again, and or, because sometimes we get both, in my body, I start to feel agitated. Sometimes we'll describe it. Some people will describe it as I'm just crawling out of my skin. It might just start to feel weird, just not like I'm used to feeling. Mm. So when one of those two things happen, before we know it, we begin to listen and we begin to steer right back to that memorized comfort zone because comfort for the subconscious is just familiar. 
and it does that to keep us safe because it's predictable because it knows the results all of that gets us and it's okay with it. Mm -hmm. Even if logically we're not okay with it, it's okay with it. So when, and I say this too because I prepare people, when you go to make this new or keep this, this daily promise three days from now, three months from now, maybe even three years from now, your subconscious might be telling you why not to. So making sure and giving people the tools to throw away the expectation that they're gonna have a cheerleading squad this time or even maybe feel like they want to. Because I think a lot of people also wait to change to feel like they want to or to feel motivated or to look for something to change internally and that's not gonna happen. So showing up, keeping those promises and acknowledging to yourself that you are keeping those promises. That seems so small, but I think most of us humans I, I used to do this too. At the end of the day, I would give me the litany and focus on everything I didn't do. And not, well, what did, I, what did I do? How did I show up for myself? And the more times you show that alignment between what I said I was going to do and what I do, you repeat that enough, you begin to trust yourself. And then you repeat that enough, those same promises, and then you begin, I believe, to feel confident in yourself, which is just, I know I do what I say. And then I think a little more repetition of that turns into empowerment that I've been speaking of, which the simplest way I define it is, I believe I can do anything. And then I become a really powerful creator. And it starts literally as small as it sounds with a small daily promise that you are keeping regardless of what your mind is telling you to do. Your mind and your thoughts are not your intuition, right? So don't believe them all of the time. That's so true, my God, I love that. Um, how much does um, health and nutrition to you play in this? Because understanding our thoughts, everything you've broken down is so amazing, but I do think that mm -hmm. there's that other component, yes. which I know you've gone through and me too, is the importance of sleep, nutrition, yes. all of that. Explain that to me yeah. and why people, people don't think about it as being part of their evolution of um, getting stronger, getting more confident, but I think it's one of the most fundamental yeah. things. Yeah, I think it's everything important because it gives our body a physiologically balanced base so that we can start to navigate our mind differently mm. because the mind and the body are connected, right? So there is no separation. The brain is an organ that lives in the body. So the health of the body is going to impact the health of the brain. And in the mind, what we're worried about are thoughts, our mental clarity, our attention, you know, some of the symptoms that we're struggling, if we're, if we're struggling with mental wellness, are all going to be impacted then by the health of the body. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I started to consider my nutrition and make some changes, it was when I was able to be in a more balanced body that then gave me the, the tools in a sense, or enhance the tools of meditation and breath work and all of that. Because in our gut, not only is it where our, the nutrients are being absorbed, that our brain, our brain has, is the, the most in need of calories and nutrients to function. So if we have a damaged gut, we're not gonna be getting the nutrients to our brain and our cognition might start to slow and our energy and sleep is an incredibly important system. Most of us don't get enough sleep. All of that is in service of making sure that our brain is as healthy as possible, and that starts with nutrition. Even furthermore, we now know that these neurotransmitters that we've all thought for so long were, were produced in the brain and contained to the brain, the serotonins, the dopamines, essentially all that is you know, kind of imbalanced when we're struggling with depression and anxiety, are actually manufactured in our gut as well. Mm -hmm. So again, if our guts aren't functioning properly, our brain isn't gonna function properly. And so if we begin to heal our guts, 
by first, the way I see it, removing the gut damaging foods, making sure we're getting a lot of nutrient dense food that we are eating. Before we know it, some if not all of our symptoms actually might go away. And it wasn't until I got my nutrition in order and then I became much more consistent with my meditation, with my breath work, and then really started to explore my own inner child wounds that I was able to, to heal. But I don't think, honestly, without making sure that my body was balanced, I don't know how successful my healing would have been. Yeah, I thought it was total woo-woo. Um, when mm -hmm. I, so I've been sick now for about four years, been struggling with my gut health issues. And initially I was going to all the like very traditional doctors. And um, after a while, someone kept telling to me, well, maybe you need to see a more holistic approach. And the first thing someone said to me is stop working when you eat. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, just stressing yourself out Stress. so much. And at that point I was so desperate for an answer that I was like, eh, it's woo woo, but sure, I'll try it. And that's where I saw massive radical change mm -hmm. in me and for the better. Um, and I know that you have mentioned that you became very forgetful. You would forget things mid-sentence. And um, I've always um, said that I'm going to be the person that's always very honest. And I've actually been on this show in days where um, I've noticed that I'm very tired, that my stomach is hurting a lot, which means I can't eat much. And so... I was in an interview and I forgot the question I was asking as I was yes. asking mm -hmm. it. And that was one of those moments that was very heartbreaking for me. I felt like, oh my God, am I not a good host anymore? Like we need to cut it out. I was so embarrassed. But in hearing everything that you're saying and things that I'm learning on the side of the gut, um, brain gut connection, it's just like, wow, my my health really had that impact on the brain and how I was performing. Yeah. And I think the, the reality of it is, societally, some of these gut-damaging foods are so prolific. They are in everything. So first and foremost, just becoming educated and starting to be a conscious consumer, reading labels, and really showing each and every one of us how present these, these particular items are in the daily choices that we're making, especially if you're going to the McDonald's or the fast foods. I mean, they are using not only the oils, I mean, some of the products. And if you're doing that multiple times a week, before you know it, you're really going to be accumulating some problems in your gut. And I was that person, even though I would go and pick what I thought were the healthier options, living in cities my whole life, you know, food at my fingertips, you know, I was, I was eating way less healthy mm -hmm. than I think I intended. And I, I didn't know, I, I wasn't aware. Um, so I often suggest being conscious about your food choices, but then starting to do some self-experimentation. So I didn't even know I could feel better mm -hmm. until I started to remove some of these. And then I felt how I felt. And I was like, oh wow, my sleep is getting better. My cognition's getting a bit clearer. My attention, I have a little bit more choice about where I put my attention now. I'm not as feeling as emotionally reactive. That's another symptom mm -hmm. sometimes for a lot of us on either gut damage or blood sugar dysregulation. Riding that emotional roller coaster really can originate in our guts. And I didn't know. So I removed some things and then I saw that my health was improving. Mm, I love that. Knowledge is so powerful. Um, you know, Melissa Hartwick, love her. You know, the whole 30 is like, the, it's so much about the elimination mm -hmm. so you can start to understand what your body is experiencing because like you were saying before it goes into habit mode it's like oh well i feel like this it must be normal mm -hmm. yeah and i don't think most of us out there know how else we could feel we don't know the energy level that is actually available to us we don't know that good sleep could be possible because right. when we talk habit 
that's experience. Mm -hmm. That means that's all I've known my whole life. How would I know that I could feel differently? Um, and I don't think it comes without starting to just get, become more aware of our bodies, our food choices, and finding the ones that work individually for us. And I'm always about, I love Melissa too, um, I'm always about conscious choice. So mm -hmm. I might still, every now and again, I like pizza. I really love me ice cream that has sugar in it, processed sometimes, right? And I try to avoid the gluten and the processed sugar more often than not. Right. But do I show up and have an ice cream cone every now and again? Yes, but I'm conscious. I'm not drowning my feelings in the ice cream cone. And I even know how it's gonna make me feel after mm -hmm. I eat it. And it might dip my energy a little bit. You know, I might not, if I have too many ice cream cones, I might not end up feeling so great. But I'm, I'm conscious, I'm choosing and I'm empowered because I know, at least for me, we all, I believe, have a little three-year-old in our minds that the second we're told to restrict or we can't have, that's all we can think about. That's all we want. Um, so I'm very much, like I said, much more of a proponent of just making empowered choices for ourselves, seeing how it makes us feel, and then using that the next time I'm offered the ice cream, which I still might choose to eat, but at least I'm empowered now because I know what I'm signing up for. I love so much that you said that because that's really the, the, the core of it all is having the knowledge, understanding, having the empowerment to make those decisions, but you know what the outcome is. I do the same thing, like literally Tom and I on our last day of our vacation. I was like, screw it, let's have like cold stone and cake. <laughs> and he's like, are you sure? And I'm like, I know I'm gonna be in pain tomorrow, but I really want it. So mm -hmm. the next day I woke up in pain, I was like, yeah, you expected it, you mm -hmm. know what you were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, where the power comes. Um, so going back to the nutrition or even just let's say there's three key things that people at home right now immediately can do that you think will make a change in um, their, their consciousness or, you know, mm -hmm. what, what three things can they easily do? Absolutely. Get conscious. Look, okay. show up for the next day, two days, log, see what you eat. If there are labels on it, take a look. I believe that most humans don't tolerate that much gluten. So that's, that's the reality. Our bodies have a system that if we eat something that maybe we shouldn't eat or that doesn't love us eating, it can recover. It can repair itself. The problem becomes when it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, repeat breakfast, lunch, dinner, because now I'm not giving my body any time to repair itself. So that's when I'm setting myself up for that gut damage. Okay. Okay, so Under the canopy of the processed world too. The sugar, be aware. I was shocked. So I am someone, like I said, who likes sugar. I thought I knew when I was eating sugar. When I started to read labels, I realized Oh, wow, I'm eating sugar in my condiments, in my dressings, and then the processed oil. So some people, especially living in cities, you know, the go-to takeout, you want to just really be careful how frequently that's happening because anything produced in a restaurant is going to be produced with such a highly processed oil. Also be aware of the oils that we're using, the canolas, the vegetable oils. Again, not really so great for the human gut. So those are the ones. So first, get eyes on it. Look and see how much of those in particular, I would say, is the second step. And then if you guys decide, anyone listening, one small step to change and showing up for yourself. Each and every time you're looking at a menu or you're making a food choice, just don't try not to do it mindlessly. And a lot of us do that. Watch if you're someone who eats around emotions too. Emotions and food can become really interconnected. A lot of us eat to feel better. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's a bit deeper work then that we have to do, um, but just become aware of your eating habits overall. Are you someone who eats to feel better or for connection? That was a big one for me. Mm -hmm. My mother who was very emotionally unavailable, very much was there with the bowl of ice cream. That was my, my love language with my mom. So for me, Changing my food choices were a little bit more complicated than just avoiding sugar, because for me, sugar meant connection, mm -hmm. love. So 
for another suggestion is to get clear on yourself. Some don't even know, but as they become conscious, they start to realize, oh, wow, I am someone who uses food as a function or has a meaning wrapped up around food that can give, again, clarity for some deeper work. Mm, I love that. I know you really believe in empowering people to basically be the heroes of their own lives. So you being your own hero, what is your superpower? I love that. I love that. So I think that my superpower is understanding I think I've always had an awareness internally of others. I'm, I'm able to see, I think, all of it um, in a way that I think has really set me up to be successful in my own healing. Of course, my understanding was to my detriment for a long time because I would explain away my feelings. Oh, I can't be mad at this person because they don't mean it and I know where they came from and I would almost do myself a disservice. But being able to harness that a bit better now, I think that has really equipped me to understand my whole full story as it continues to evolve. Because like I said, I spent a lot of my t life with one version of my life, mm -hmm. with one narrative. Letting in more of it gave me more understanding. And I think that's what's helping me um, impart that in others. Because I do believe that we are complicated as humans. There is never one factor. There is never one way to heal. There is not one thing to do really for anything. So the wider we can expand our understanding, I believe that sets us up for change. And where can people find you, your videos, your blog, all the awesome yes, things you're doing? Yes, absolutely. So my main hub that I'm always shouting out is my Instagram, um, the.holistic.psychologist. I have a YouTube as well that's a little bit on the newer side at The Holistic Psychologist, a website at yourholisticpsychologist.com. But really, if one-stop shop is the Instagram because nothing gets announced on any of those other areas without me shouting it from the rooftops on Instagram and also me showing you guys me healing. Mm. I'm on there every day. I'm doing my journaling. I'm meditating. Um, I'm showing each and every one that I'm still in this journey together. And so come and find me and find some really supportive, amazing humans in those comments and doing the same thing. Cause I know healing can be lonely too. Yeah. So it's really great to have a community like that. Thank you. Guys, guys, you do have to check her out. Oh my God, I'm so bummed that the hour is up. Like when I say I want to keep talking to this woman, I have so many notes I want to discuss about boundaries and all that good stuff. But I'm going to try and bring her on as part two. If you guys enjoyed it, please do give this video a thumbs up. Comment below. Let us know what else you want me to ask this woman because I will get her on. Um, if this episode has brought you value, guys, click that subscribe button and join. I am going to rewatch this episode a million times because there's so many nuggets of gold that this woman just spilled all over the floor. I'm going to try and pick everything up. <laughs> go back, rewatch this, jot down all the notes that she gave. I'm trying to talk quickly because go out and be the hero of your own life. Peace out, guys. <laughs> I am so good. Thank you so much. <laughs>